You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Good to see you this morning. I told you last week uh, that we celebrate the resurrection every week, all right? And so I love to worship with you. Uh, Thank you, worship team, for leading us so capably for uh, the work that you do each week. I also want to say thank you to everyone uh, who made last week possible. Uh, We had somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 people here last week on Resurrection Sunday, and uh, you ate 45 dozen donuts. That's that's impressive. I got to say, that's impressive. Um, But somebody had to go pick up those donuts and order those donuts and all those things. That's just a small part of everything that happened last week. Uh, and into the weekend, uh, some participated in our Good Friday service, and then Saturday at the Community Easter Egg event, and uh, then, of course, uh, last Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday. It was just a great, great time, so thank you uh, so much for being here. I will tell you, since you're now in the late service, uh, that there wasn't nearly as many people keen on being here at 8.30 this week as there was last week. Uh, for, I guess, various reasons. Uh, I am impressed if you're in the room this morning and you did prom last night. I'm putting in a special word for you, okay? I'm putting in a special word with the Lord for you today because uh, that's a sacrifice. I know you had a late night and uh, you're here nonetheless, so thank you for that. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. While you're turning there, uh, let me remind those of you who are a part of the First Baptist family that we have a special called members meeting immediately after this service. Uh, It's not a private meeting, and so if you are not a member of First Baptist Church, you're welcome to stay. Uh, maybe uh, give you kind of an inside look at who we are just a little bit. Uh, it will be brief. I will tell you, after the early service, it took about 15 minutes-ish, okay? So uh, we're just going to be considering one matter, and uh, that was announced a couple of weeks ago. And so you're going to be looking at um, adjusting the budget to accommodate a ministry resident joining our team. And so uh, that will happen immediately after this service. And so we'll kind of shift over to this side of the room and we'll take care of that right over here. Uh, but again, don't want to run anybody off or anything like that. Um, but that will happen after the service. Well, we're back in our Gospel of John series this morning. Uh, person of interest. We're in chapter 5 now. We're, uh, if you'll remember uh, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath brought about persecution from the Jewish religious leaders. We looked at that in verse 16 of chapter 5. And and now Jesus has nothing more to say about the Sabbath beyond the words that he utters in verse number 17. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago where he says, my father is working until now and I am working. Now in our text today, Jesus' primary intention is really not to develop a theology of the Sabbath, but to explain what he meant Uh, by his Sabbath defense in verse number 17. Healing on the Sabbath was important, but not ultimate. You see, instead, Jesus healed on the Sabbath to illustrate and to announce the greater works that he talks about in verse number 20 that the Father has sent him to accomplish. And so Jesus builds upon his statement there in verse number 17, uh, defining and uh, expanding upon and even defending the idea that he works in unity with the Father. And those religious leaders of his day found that incredibly offensive. 
Uh, and so through this discourse, if you have a red letter edition of God's word today, you'll notice that our text is in red letters because this is a discourse really that Jesus is giving. And through this discourse, he declares that the incarnate son, he himself builds his kingdom by his word. That's a theme that we see throughout scripture. In the beginning was the Word, right? The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. And so we see that theme continuing here in John's Gospel. Now, the text that we're looking at today is about authority. Now, a lot of people today have issues with authority. <laughs> and some of you, if you were completely honest today, you would have to say that there were times in your life, maybe even seasons in your life, uh, some that maybe you're not so proud of, where you too had issues with authority. Uh, some of you, maybe in your teenage years, you were especially rebellious, uh, and now you've got kids of your own, and, and you are reaping what you have sown, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there's just something about it. I, some people just do not like being under authority. They are always bucking authority, always questioning authority, always pushing the limits of authority. And I, I'm always amused when you hear about somebody who, you know, kind of lived that life in their younger years, and then they decide to join the Marine Corps, right? And it's like, you're about to get a lesson about authority is what you're about to get. Um, well, this section really is about authority, and there are two main questions about authority that this passage asks, and, and Jesus gets pretty theological in this text, and so we're going to do our best to, to try to hang with our Lord uh, as we move through this passage. The first question that we need to answer is, what is the relationship between the authority of God the Father and the authority of God the Son? And another question that will really take a little longer to answer, more time than we even have in this message, is what is the relationship between the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority of his church? And so let's pick it up. We're going to take it in sections today because we're taking a pretty big chunk of scripture for today's message. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse number 19 and first read down through verse 24. So I hope that you'll follow along there. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life." So the first thing I want us to look at today from our text is the authority of the incarnate Son. Really important right here that we are absolutely clear about what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. And the reason I say that is because this particular section of Scripture, this passage, is one of the passages that is frequently cited by those that we would consider heretics who have taught falsely about Jesus throughout the history of the church. Uh, one of the reasons that I tell you pretty frequently when someone knocks on your door and, and you're uncertain about what they believe and whether it's true to Scripture and all those things, one of the first things that you can do is ask them, what do you believe about the deity of Jesus Christ? And if they suggest to you that Jesus was just a great teacher or was a created being, 
uh, or, or just a great leader, something like that, you can know something's not right. Okay? They don't believe the Scripture the way that we believe Scripture. Okay? They're not orthodox, uh, in other words. Uh, and so it's a very, very important subject. And so uh, we've got to be really clear on, on what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying in this text. We go back to verse 19 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, if we read that out of context... It can sound like the Son, God the Son, has limitations that God the Father does not. That the Father is over here doing anything He wants to do, and the Son really has some pretty strict limitations on what He can do according to what He sees the Father do. But understand this, Jesus is not a trust fund kid trying to distance Himself from His Father. He's not the black sheep of the family trying to make a name for himself. He's not a, the type A firstborn trying to outdo his daddy and, and make it on his own. That's, not, what, that's not, not what's happening here. He's perfectly in sync with the Father. He's not a second God who's come to steal the worship and adoration that belongs only to the true God. He is the true God, full stop. He is the true God. He and the Father are one. To worship God is to worship Jesus. And to worship Jesus is to worship God. Now remember his defense for working on the Sabbath. He said, if the Father has the authority to work on the Sabbath, then I do as well. So Jesus is making a clear statement there of deity and authority by revealing his ability to do works only God can do. He has the authority to give a person life, in verse 21. And he has the authority to judge mankind, verse 22. These two characteristics are unique to God and God alone. So if Jesus has the authority to do them, then he must be God, God in the flesh. He will raise the dead to life, it says. He personally will rise from the dead, as we celebrated last Sunday. And so when he does so, those who oppose him will marvel. Jesus is saying, you saw me heal a lame man on the Sabbath, but you explained it away and said he's got no authority over us. See, they had an issue with authority. What are you going to say when I raise someone from the dead? <laughs> you thought it was incredible that, that I made this lame man who'd been lame for 38 years walk suddenly. Check this out. The best is yet to come. <laughs> Just you wait until you see what's coming. How will you explain that one? How will you avoid the clear conclusion that I am God, and with that, you must obey me? Now, this doesn't mean that the Father has a set of people that he has raised to life and, and given life to, and that the Son has another set of people uh, which he does the same thing. What Jesus is saying is that everyone who receives life, who is raised up from death, that is the work of the Father working in and through the Son. It's why we often say here, Jesus did not come, live a perfect sinless life, die a substitutionary death, conquer the grave just to make good people better. No, he came to make dead people alive. And that's what he's saying here. To give life to those who are spiritually dead. So what Jesus is saying is that everyone who receives life is raised up from death. That is the work of the Father working in and through the Son. Now the Orthodox Church, the faithful church throughout history, has always confessed that the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. 
They're indivisible. You can't say the Father does that and the Son does that and the Spirit does that as though they are somehow separate, three different gods. No, we're not talking about some kind of pluralism here. We're not, we're not talking about, a, no, we're talking about a triunity. They're connected so that everything the Father does is in and through the Son, including raising the dead and giving life. Now, verse 22 says, This is the second work that Jesus talks about. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Another verse of scripture that can be easily misunderstood. But if you follow American politics at all, uh, you know about what we call the transition of power when a new president comes into office. Uh, It's something that sets our form of government apart uh, uniquely from many other forms of government around the world. It's an amazing thing. Now, I realize that the transition from President Trump to President Biden didn't go so well, and that is uh, still being hotly debated. Okay, that's not the subject of this morning's message, trust me. Um, the way that it is supposed to work is one individual lays aside all the authority and most of the privileges associated with the office of the President of the United States of America. And that authority and those privileges are peacefully transferred to the new President who has just taken the oath of office. Now, at first glance, verse number 22, it, it can look like that's what's happening here. That's not the case. If we read Jesus as saying something similar happening, that the Father may be used to to judge at one time, and now it's the the Son's term to judge, so to speak, then we misunderstand the text. That's not what's happening here. This is coming to a point, I promise you, okay? So hang with the words of Jesus a little bit. In verse 30, if you glance down there, and we'll get there in a moment, but it says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see how we continue to see that language of being the sent one in John's gospel? Over and over again, we see that recurring theme, Jesus as the sent one. So Jesus judges according to what he hears from his father, the one who sent him. The father judges no one, but the father judges all through the work of his son, This is the triunity of the Godhead working together. Uh, Very, very important. Now let's look secondly at the kingdom of the incarnate Son. And with that, let's pick it up again in verse number 25. And we'll read down through verse number 29. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all this is future now. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The question here is, how does he build his kingdom? How does he build his kingdom? If we're saying Jesus is the king, and we believe that, king of kings, lord of lords, then I think we ought to know what his kingdom looks like. So when Jesus, again, references these two works of giving life, verse 26, executing judgment in verse number 27, there are not two life givers, but one life giver. The Father gives life in and through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so again, it isn't that the father's term of judging is somehow over and he's passing the gavel, so to speak. He is judging all in and through the son. And so here are the two works of the kingdom. One is to give life. In verse number 25, Jesus clarifies that he's talking about the spiritually dead who come to believe the gospel. That would be you this morning if you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. You have been made alive by the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Jesus Christ. All working together. All right, so wants to give life. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That was, that was beginning to happen. Okay, we're seeing that happening here. Now, the gospel here is the heart of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. Other kings build their kingdoms by war and by violence, and by amassing for themselves riches and wealth and power. And if you study world history, you see it over and over again. I mean, these crazy lunatic leaders who are just like trying to conquer more territory and get more stuff and, and, and grabbing for more power and everything. Jesus did it in a completely different way. Our king gave up all of his power, all of his riches, all of his glory, and he took the form of a servant. It wasn't by inflicting violence that he brought subjects to himself, disciples for himself. No, he underwent violence for his people. He underwent violence for our sin. That's what we we focused our attention on on Good Friday, was the, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He submitted to death on the cross for our sin, established his kingdom because we were sinful, and he came as a servant who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to establish his kingdom. So this is the way that Jesus Christ builds his kingdom today. It's what the church is tasked with doing, proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. And I would add, for sinners like you and me, because I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner, and we're all sinners. God's Word says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Look to Jesus Christ and be saved. He died for you, but death couldn't hold him. He's alive, and he reigns as the exalted servant. So Jesus says in 28 and 29 here, verses 28 and 29, that all those who were in the tombs, now he's talking about a future time, a future day of the Lord, a final judgment. Every physically dead person will hear this voice and come out. But those who have done good, that is, this is not a works-based salvation. Those who have been good little boys and girls, that's not what he's talking about. Those who have done good, that is those who have lived a life of faith, who have walked by faith and not by sight, who have believed and, and, and had life to resurrection of life. Also, those who have done evil, who have rejected the voice of the Son of God to the resurrection of judgment. There's a final judgment coming. And so Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, is building his kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus now focuses on his word in a very different way. The reason he does this in verses 31 through 38 is that the testimony of Jesus is disputed. I think it's becoming increasingly clear for us as we make our way through John's gospel that everybody wasn't super excited about Jesus. Okay, he was starting to get more and more pushback. 
And it was becoming more and more clear that especially among the religious leaders of Jesus' day that they had a problem with Jesus. They had a problem with his teaching. They had a problem with his authority. They had an authority issue. And so because of that, people are looking at him and they're hearing this discourse for the first time. And in many cases, I'm sure it's going right over their heads. They don't believe a word that Jesus is saying. And it's not just that they don't believe it or they don't understand it. They reject it. They reject it. So then that forces us, number three today, to look at witnesses to the deity of the incarnate Son. These witnesses that Jace mentioned earlier. Now look at verses 30 through 39. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Then verse 33, he says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've not heard, his form you have not seen, you have never seen. Verse number 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus here says that if I alone bear witness about myself, what he's fundamentally saying is this would not be valid or admissible in the court of law. If you're charged with a crime, they put you on the witness stand, nothing you say on your own can exonerate you. Okay? And so the same principle is true here. Anybody can proclaim to be the Son of God. We've seen that down through human history. Uh, I, I revisited the whole Waco thing uh, not long ago. I watched a Netflix documentary about, about uh, the Branch Davidians and the Waco thing and all that. And remember, it was David Koresh who claimed what? I am Jesus Christ. He claimed to be essentially the Son of God. This is not a new thing. This, this has happened. And so he's saying anybody can claim to be the Son of God, but just by saying it doesn't make it so. So Jesus is saying my testimony about myself alone isn't valid. He's not suggesting that he's not telling the truth here. What he's saying is, I need other witnesses. You need other witnesses, all right? So in verse 32, Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know, that's a word of certainty in the original language, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, Jesus is talking about God the Father, the one who sent him. He can't go directly there because they reject the idea uh, that the Father is his Father. And so then he goes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a witness with whom they're a bit more familiar. And you see that in verses 33 through 35. So the religious leaders apparently liked John. They, they must have thought that he was spunky, interesting. They, they wanted to rejoice in his light as the way that Jesus puts it for a while. But Jesus is saying, didn't you hear him? Didn't you hear him? He testified that I was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. But did you miss it? 
Apparently you did. Then Jesus says, I don't want to rest my case in the testimony of a human being. So let me introduce another witness. And it's the works that the Father had sent him to do. Jesus says, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This is one of the few places where we are reminded that that he's actually still talking about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath and is saying, look at this. This is a man who was lame for 38 years, and I made him walk in a moment. These are the works that my Father has given to me. Who else can do this? You should see these things and recognize that they bear witness about me. That's why I wanted us to revisit the purpose for John's writing there in chapter 20. These signs, these things were written so that you may believe that I'm the Christ. That's the whole purpose for John writing here. This is all evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's what it's all about. So you should see these things and recognize that they bear witness that I come from the Father to do the Father's works that he is doing in and through me. So then he presents God the Father. Verse 37, Jesus finally calls the Father as a witness. He says... And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So then he uses the words of Scripture. He brings out the witness to the Father's witness. In the scriptures, it's a critical move in verse number 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, up to this point, you may have thought that when I was speaking about my word, hearing my word, hearing and believing the voice of the Son of God, that Jesus was just talking about the New Testament. Now, when he talks about the scriptures here, again, the New Testament hasn't been written. You've you got to remember that. The scriptures he talks about are the Old Testament. So beginning to end, all 66 books of the canon of the entire Bible bear witness to Jesus. So anytime somebody suggests to you that we can somehow separate the Old and New Testaments, that they're wrong. Because as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, where we find what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, it all points to Jesus. It's why we sometimes say what appears to be concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus Christ. Those of you who've been studying the Exodus... You've been seeing these pictures of what that represents, what that means to us. Our freedom from bondage to sin, slavery to sin. You see all these things pointing to Jesus Christ. And you see this over and over again in the scriptures. So Jesus is saying, look, you're like blind men staring at the Mona Lisa. Several years ago, I did a series of messages on the Pharisees of Jesus' day, and I called that series Adventures in Missing the Point. (laughs) Because that's what they consistently did. 
You ever find yourself engaged in a certain situation, maybe, and it's like, I think I just totally missed the whole point of this. That, that was what they did. They, they just consistently missed the point. He's saying, your eyes are in the right place, but you have no idea what you're seeing there. The scriptures testify to me. They are mine. The scriptures are my word telling you about who I would be future, about what I would teach, about what I would do, including the passage in Deuteronomy about the prophet that God would send in whose mouth I will put my words, including the passage from our assurance of pardon where the author of Hebrews says that long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us, check this out, by his son, right? By his son. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The concept there is icon. It's an icon. You want to see what God is like? Look to Jesus. You want to see how God responds? Look to Jesus. You want to understand the mind of God? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And, 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 and you know, we can't devote too much time and attention to the deity of Jesus Christ. This is critical because without it, we have no genuine faith. C.S. Lewis, I, I seem to quote him often lately, it was writing to a dear friend who uh, had rejected Christ and embraced atheism. This is what he wrote to him. He said, if Christ was not God, who or what was he? The doctrine of Christ's divinity seems to me not something to get stuck on, but something that peeps out at every point of the New Testament so that you have to unravel the whole web to get rid of it. And if you take away the Godhead of Christ, what is Christianity all about? Well, the answer to that question this morning is a resounding nothing. Without the deity of Jesus Christ, there's no Christian faith. There's no gospel. There's no power to save. So see, Jesus declared no less than six truths about himself here in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. All of which point to a single overarching declaration that demands a response. Demands a response. Think about it like this. If I was to stand up here this morning and I was to look at you with as honest a look on my face as I possibly could, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know today that I am a horse. You may not verbalize your response, but somehow, some way, you would have to mentally respond to that statement. Hopefully, hopefully, you would be able to quickly say, no, pastor, you are not. And you might want to check your blood sugar, Okay. Because something's not right. But you couldn't be indifferent to it. Like, you, you wouldn't go tell your friends over lunch this next week. Like, check this out. Our pastor thinks he's a horse. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> no, you, you, you can't be ambivalent to that. Like, you just can't. And it's the same way here. So he, he leaves no room for compromise, no middle ground on which to stand. We must choose to believe or reject his claim. So if you choose to reject his claim to deity, then you must choose between two alternative explanations or some form thereof. Either Jesus knew his claims were false, 
or he did not. So if Jesus was wrong about his identity, he was neither a good man nor a teacher who was worth hearing, right? None of his words would be trustworthy. But if you choose to believe his claim of deity to deity, then you have, to, you have another pair of alternative responses. Rebellion or trust. Rebellion or trust. It is possible to believe in the existence of God and even accept in some way the truth of his becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ and yet reject his offer of grace and suffer the just penalty for your sin. It's kind of like this. I can stand here this morning and I can give you directions. I can tell you that I know how to get from Van Alstine, Texas to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Okay? But knowing how to get from Van Alstine, Texas to Oklahoma City doesn't put me in Oklahoma City. And there are people who sit in churches just like this every week who think they know the plan of salvation. They know how to get from earth to heaven, as it were. But just knowing how to get there doesn't put you there. Okay, knowing about Jesus Christ, knowing of Jesus Christ, knowing about his teachings and his, you know, he's a good moral leader and all those sorts of things, that does not put you in Christ. And so the question is, if you do in fact believe his claim to deity today, then what's your response? It might be today, no, I got this. I can somehow, some way, on my own, be good enough to earn God's favor. Or, you'd have to say, I'm fully trusting you as the only one, as the only one who is fit to pay my sin debt. Rebellion or trust. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment this morning, My hope and prayer is that you understand this morning the importance the importance of understanding the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a god, one among many. Jesus is very God. It's why later in John's gospel we find Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So he's saying there, I'm not just one of many options. You have your way to God, I have my way to God. No, he's saying, I am the way. So if you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, would you consider his claims today? Do you understand that scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, initiated by God the Father, made possible by God the Son, by the Holy Spirit, 
That's why almost weekly I say and I pray that anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord would be drawn by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God. You may be here today and you would say, Pastor, I've been considering the claims of Christ. I've been reading the Bible, maybe for the first time. And I'm kind of in that place right now where I would say, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's all right. We want to help you do that. We want to help you understand who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish on your behalf. We're about to sing a song that many of you are familiar with. It talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. No longer slaves to sin. So again, my hope and prayer is that if you do not yet know him as your Savior and your Lord, that you would be drawn to him today by, your, by his Holy Spirit and the power of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And your word tells us that that's a demonstration of your great love for us. God the Son died a death that he did not deserve so that we could have a life that we could never deserve in and of ourselves. It's grace. It's the amazing grace that we sang of this morning. We love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.